0: Three-way movie gasm.
1: Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. People stop and stare. Hi
2: and welcome to the uh, to our ninth episode of Three Way Moviegasm. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about Oscar years nineteen sixty nine and nineteen seventy, and we might go off off topic uh, toward the end, but we're going to start with those two movies. Um, our goal was to try to find um, an Oscar year that was the worst on record. We were trying to find the absolute worst year for for Oscar, and um, in the process we ended up finding that there really aren't any really bad oscar years because there's always some one good really good thing at least about them is that's what i found anyway um so we're going to start with 1969 and the films that were nominated that year were anne of a thousand days butch cassidy and the sundance kid hello dolly midnight cowboy and z and i'll just say what strikes me um, right up front about this is that we're on the brink of the 70s, which most people agree was the the best era for uh, best picture winners. I'm sure some some of you might disagree with that notion, but you know we we all think that that was their more, most daring era, where they were really picking artistic artistic achievements versus blockbusters, and a lot of that had to do with the pressures that were building up in this in this time period right before we got into the 70s. Um, and how the Academy was getting so much flack for rewarding these these um, ridiculous blockbusters, which we'll get to after 1969 and 1970 that kind of went over the deep end. But after 1970, things improved greatly.
0: And I think, too, one of the things about 1969 is you can still feel remnants of the old Hollywood or the old Oscar traditional movies with End of a Thousand Days and even Hello, Dolly, because – as we said last week, between 1958 and 1968, five of the Best Picture winners were musicals. And so they were still mm-hmm. trying to milk that musical thing dry, but by Hello, Dolly! and Darling, that had run its course, and people were really tired of those movies. And even the big historical epics that won, like uh, Man for All Seasons, when they tried to replicate that with Anne of a Thousand Days, it just didn't happen. And, and so maybe they were beginning to realize in 1968 and 1969 that they needed to to look forward, be more forward-thinking. Plus, there were just some really great movies in 69 that they couldn't have possibly overlooked, like Midnight
1: Cowboy.
2: Midnight Cowboy. Um, Also, I should say, my name is Sasha Stone, and um, I'm here with Ryan Adams, who you just heard speaking, and we both with AwardsDaily.com. We're also here with Craig Kennedy, who runs LivingInCinema.com, and is a member of the Online Film Critics Society. (laughs) So, in case I didn't do the introductions, we've done them now, so we can go back to discussing the films.
0: You laughed at the online film critic society. I didn't. I just want to make. I just want to have it on the record that I wasn't giggling.
1: We're teasing Craig because we just discovered that he that he's gotten a whole pile of screeners from being part of this critics group, and we're Ryan and I are both very jealous. And that's
0: why I'm not giggling because I am jealous and I don't want to ruin my chances that maybe someday I might be. In it.
1: Okay.
2: Um, I just like to say about just really quickly about 1968, before we start to continue with 1969, one of the things that we all are interested in is looking at the films that didn't get nominated. Um, and one of the great things that Damien Bona and Mason Wiley do in their book inside Oscar is that they always list the films that weren't nominated in a given year. And sometimes you can go like when they had 10 nominees, you don't find as many glaring errors as you do later when they reduce them to five, for instance, 1968, the films that were not nominated included 2001, A Space Odyssey, Rosemary's Baby, um, Belle Du Jour, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And the movies that were nominated instead, um, Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Oliver, Rachel Rachel, and Romeo and Juliet. just kind of shows you the sort of dynamic that we're coming out of as we head into the 70s.
3: And a year later, uh, you've got Midnight Cowboy, which won for both Best Picture and Best Director. It's sort of like a, a total sea change from the year before where they kind of made square choices and ignored some of the more progressive and forward-thinking mm-hmm. movies. And then a year later, they, they the tide shifted and they, they clicked and, and actually got it right for the most part
0: man perfect word there. the square choices I think that they were really worried about becoming square nineteen sixty eight is such a square year with Hello Dolly and yeah. the other movies and they were really wanted to shed that square image and 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 what better way to do that than to nominate and to award a movie like midnight cowboy that was that was uh x rated the first x rated best picture winner
2: no oh, that's so interesting
0: and and also I may not have been known uh, very publicly or worldwide but John Schlesinger was openly gay director at the time too.
2: Oh I didn't know that and so
0: yeah,
2: was it in the press I mean was it in the public or was it just I'm not the saying, kind of I, I
0: think that it probably wasn't I think that it wasn't very well known but it had to be known in the Hollywood community though so that's pretty right. open-minded of them. But I think that's that they,
2: I, in the Hollywood community, they knew that, that Monty Clift was gay. They knew um, Rock Hudson. And George
0: Cukor, of course, too, they knew. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm, I think that probably, uh, I have a, I just have a feeling that John Schlesinger was more openly gay because the year after Midnight Cowboy, didn't he direct Sunday Bloody Sunday, which uh, had, who um, was it, who's the actor in that? He's a gay character. It's a, it's a, it has a gay theme, that movie. Hmm. The husband who has an affair with a younger guy.
2: Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it was definitely getting a little more um, free thinking, uh, and here in nineteen sixty nine, especially with with the themes in Midnight Cowboy, I would almost say that Midnight Cowboy is the most daring best picture winner ever in Academy history. Um, and you know, let's talk about why it won. So it's up against Z, <laughs> Hello Dolly. Um... Butch Cassidy and Anne of a Thousand Days. I mean, those are pretty weak, I would say, competition for Midnight Cowboy. You can see how it really stands out as being the one really kind of daring film. But also in the culture surrounding this, um, we're coming out of 1968. We're coming out of the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. Civil rights, we're, we're coming out, you know, we're, they're talking about the counterculture, the young people when we get to the next year, I'll read you a great quote about uh, one Gregory Peck talking about trying to bring younger minds into the Academy. And what struck me about it was that, you know, they're they're talking about stuff then that we sort of are talking about now, you know, how to bring the Academy up to date, how to keep them current um, and rewarding, you know, um, not just daring films, but but films that shouldn't be written off just because they're too hard for the Academy to deal with, like Black Swan or, you know, people keep saying, oh, it won't get nominated because it's not an Academy movie, you know? Well, the Academy gave Midnight Cowboy a Best Picture win, so you tell me what's an Academy movie.
3: I would actually but, even r- remove Z from your equation. That one's actually pretty um, edgy for its time. It's hmm. very um, I- I was controversial politically, it. and it's got a very much, it's a, it's a French film. I mean, it was actually nominated also for best foreign film where it Hmm. won Um, and it's actually a pretty good companion piece with Midnight Cowboy in terms of um, youthful and and forward looking I think it it was a pretty unusual choice I think actually for the Academy to make and I'm I'm glad that they did
2: that's great can you talk a little bit more about the movie I don't really know much about it actually
3: it, it's, um, it's based on a true story that happened in Greece in the early 60s where a political assassination led to uh, an overturning of the government. And it actually starts out with a title card that says any similarities to persons and events is not coincidental. It is intentional. Oh, wow. So even though they cha- they change the names of everybody and it's set in sort of an unspecified, vaguely European country, it still all directly ties into exactly as the events happen as they happened in Greece. Um, and there, there's just a lot of social unrest and, and people rioting in the streets and, and government trying to clamp down on people. And it just is, and it, 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 there's a lot of, um, peace activism and it just really kind of plays into the whole Vietnam war era, which, which hadn't really asserted itself in terms of, of big time movies. I don't think, I mean, we had the green berets, which was more of a pro war picture. We hadn't really had the, um. The counterculture represented too much, but but Z hmm. definitely covers that territory.
1: So it was just a really
0: well-made movie, too. It was extremely well-made. The editing and the um, just stylistically, it was it was pretty advanced. Looking at the other foreign films that year, it was by far the best foreign film. Um, it was a great choice, and it wasn't nominated in five different categories.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was nominated for best picture, best foreign film, best director, best editing, and best screenplay, and it won for foreign and for editing and actually i would argue that it should have been nominated for the score um by mikish theodorakis mm. um, it was kind of sporadic it wasn't like one of those constant beginning to end scores but when it was used it was extremely compelling and it immediately would would grab your attention and make you and make you watch it was it was mm. actually he's the guy that did um what most people probably remember him for is uh, zorba the greek
2: Oh, wow. Well, it says here that the uh, Z is the first film to be nominated for both Foreign Film and Best Picture. Um, And there have been a handful of them after that. I know that Life is Beautiful is one. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was another, right?
1: Yeah,
3: but it's so rare.
2: It's so rare. It hardly ever happens. I mean, we kind of got into Mm -hmm. this discussion a little bit this week on the site about animated films and jumping categories. You know, whether if a film is good enough to be Best Picture um, nominee... And to, to- there has to be
0: that crossover effect with the audience, too, I think. It really has to be something that audiences uh, are excited to see. And a lot of foreign films of the 60s, a lot of the new wave things were the art house movies that maybe weren't uh, widely seen across the country because they weren't really that exciting in the way that uh, mainstream audiences like. But Z is certainly an exciting movie, too. Hmm. I only have, have seen it once a long time ago, but when I saw a couple of years ago the uh, Bader-Meinhof Complex, I thought mm-hmm. to myself, this reminds me of Z a little bit. Oh, hey, wow. right. Um
2: Right. It, it also says here in Inside Oscar that the the foreign film that was rejected by the committee that year was um, Fellini's Satyricon.
0: Not one of his best, though. You know?
2: It's not one of his best, but it's still interesting that, that it was it was rejected. And um, I should also say that the films that were not picked in 1968, 69 for Best Picture, uh, there aren't – well, there's Easy Rider um, – The Wild Bunch, unfortunately. They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Um, Alice's Restaurant. Take the Money and Run, which is a great movie, but nobody would ever expect that to get a Best Picture nomination. And Sweet Charity. Those are just some of the ones that that they rejected. I I think that missing out on The Wild Bunch was, was pretty bad.
0: That's probably between 1969 and 1970. If we were to pick the two most um, influential movies, looking back in retrospect, probably The Wild Bunch and M.A.S.H. were the two most important movies of of those two years. hmm. And it's really amazing that they didn't get nominated. But it is pretty – in a way, you have to tip your hat and give props to the Academy for nominating them at all for Best Screenplay. They both got nominated for Screenplay. Because I think sometimes they do recognize the more – advanced movies, the screenwriters see that sometimes before the rest of the Academy does?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I sort of like that trend of, of you know, sort of when I first started doing this, the, the trend was more about recognizing writers rather than it being a fallback for not getting a Best Picture nomination. You know, mm-hmm. it's always better to me when when the screenplay award isn't just swept up in the Best Picture but is really deserving of of that nomination, even if it means you're awarding a or you're nominating a film that has no chance of getting in for Best Picture. you know. If the writing is good enough, it's great when they do that.
3: On that note, it should be said that although they shoot horses, don't they, didn't get a Best Picture nomination. It did actually get nine other nominations, which is the second highest total of that year, including wow. um, uh, Sidney Pollack got Best Director and... I can't remember what the other ones were, but um, it only won for um, best supporting actor for Gig Young. But it, it got a lot get, of acting nominations. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. Wow! And it missed out on best picture. That's so strange. Yeah.
0: Wasn't Jane Fonda nominated? I think I'm not. I'm not seeing the page right now. I'm just trying to think from memory. Yeah,
2: she's nominated. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, another thing about '69, talking about the Wild Bunch and and uh, Butch casting and the Sundance Kid. Another Western that came out that year, of course, was True Grit. I think that's one of the reasons we chose this year. We were trying to think of some way we could tie in the historical discussions to the current year. And True Grit was 1969, too. Think, and that's what perfect example, What a more perfect example of the transition that Hollywood was going through then to take a genre yeah. like the Western and to have those three points along the scale from True Grit that definitely – square western mm-hmm. to Butch Casting and Sundance Kid which is a little bit hip you yeah. know, but still has a little, a little bit corny too looking back on it and something like the Wild Bunch which was just mind blowing really mind-blowing. the Wild Bunch was just way beyond it, everything yeah. else
2: it really was I mean it, it it's funny to see the Academy picking tr- kind of John Wayne for true grit over um, anything in the Wild Bunch but god what a great movie <laughs> Um,
0: but you know, it's the only uh, true. That's the only nomination True Grit got, though. Yeah,
3: is- it actually was, got two. It also got Best Song. Uh, um, okay. Best Song was horrible, and the less said about that, the better.
2: It was <laughs> really
3: <laughs> awful. That it was Glenn really Campbell like song, right?
2: it was like the year Jeff Bridges won. I mean, it was the same kind of thing. I think mm-hmm. it was just like let's you know we have to give John Wayne an Oscar, so this is about the best we got, so we're gonna give it to him. And, and how ironic, but, but you know,
0: that Jeff Bridges is nominated this year in the same role,
2: but he beat both John Voight and Dustin Hoffman for Midnight Cowboy. Um, well, And
3: he beat Burton and O'Toole, too, who, if you're going to give out career Oscars, I mean, Burton there's two guys right you. there that certainly deserved career Didn't Oscars. It, was
0: it last week that I said that uh, John Wayne went pounding on Richard Burton's door and tried to thrust his Oscar into Richard Burton's hand and said, this um. belongs to you, because Burton had been nominated six or seven times and had never won, and John Wayne pretended or at least acted like he felt guilty of course when when i think that uh, i think the situation there was that liz taylor and burton were
1: yeah. in
0: hollywood and they showed up they 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 really were wanting, wanting wanting it that year because they they didn't go to the oscars the year that they were nominated for who's afraid of virginia Woolf? and they thought maybe that hurt their chances so mm-hmm. they wanted to show up this year and so they were in hollywood so it wasn't too hard for john wayne to find them
2: there was just something. If, if the
3: story is true, he was apparently the only person in Hollywood who didn't think he deserved it.
1: Right, that's true. That from what I
0: read, yeah, from what I hear, that he was cheered even going into the Kodak and everything, and he he was made a big splash on stage, and he made some 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 jokes, and just they had the audience in the palm of his hand. John Wayne. John Wayne. Yeah, I think that that they it's... really felt like that. It, that you know, with looking back on his career, they thought this is a guy who's. He was such a legend, and we can't believe that we've never given him an Oscar until now. Right. Plus, even though it was sort of a corny role, he did really chew the scenery, and he ate that role
1: up, you know?
2: <laughs> the, the thing is, they just, they all really loved him, and um, he, you know, it, it reminded me of, like, when Jack Palance won, or, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, or even Sandra Bullock, you know? It's like these these uh, reliable moneymakers who, you know, are really in the business of keeping Hollywood going, and... Um, plus, I think people felt just sort of nostalgic about John Wayne in this particular era as we head into the 70s, you know, and, and out of the 60s. It's just sort of a – you can feel the Academy kind of reaching back into their past and, and trying to hold on to something um, old Hollywood-ish before they totally abandon it in the next decade. You know, decade. especially
0: when they see a movie like The Wild Bunch, which blows the Western right out of the water and right. they think – Oh no! It's, I think it, that's it's, in a way. It, it, what happened when uh, with Brokeback Mountain? Nobody wanted to see Brokeback Mountain do that to the Western, and maybe people were feeling the same way about the Wild Bunch. It was, I think, one of the first movies to throw to show uh, those exploding squibs with blood, you know, spurting out of people's bodies. And mm-hmm. back then, those squibs were these little explosive devices. They weren't really very refined yet, and they really hurt. Those things really hurt, and it was a really a, a violent way to film. And no one had ever seen blood squirting out like that before yeah uh, like maybe i guess um bonnie and clyde is when it started or right what, but i think the wild bunch was the first western to use that
2: and the wild bunch is so um i mean it was just so daring for its time it really didn't have any kind of pat um answers in it and it, it was it was quite an ambig- ambiguous story going through and that's definitely something that that um is generally not embraced, I would say, in the Best Picture race. They kind of It has to be sort of a complete and traditional story. Um, I was reading a little bit in Inside Oscar about net the following year, 1970, if we want to move into that. Um, and they were saying that um, it, how um, Robert Altman was talking about how unusual it was that he had characters... Um, talking at the same time and how he used to get so much shit from the producers for that just for that having people talk at the same time was revolutionary <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. and
2: so you know when MASH came along it was sort of um, hailed by the critics as a you know really groundbreaking because of his naturalistic style you know especially having people kind of talk in that conversational tone and it was just something that is coming coming out of the old Hollywood and, and something that would be part of the new Hollywood, you know, and, and continues to this day.
0: Luckily for Altman, uh, the audiences loved mash too. And I think that really helped him. It was a really a huge popular success. It really, yeah. it set him for the rest of his career. Really. He had a, a pretty rocky career up and down as far as, um, moneymakers go, very up and down. He was never, you know, the kind of director you could depend on to, to really rake in the box, but mash was impressive. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it set him up pretty well.
2: So coming out of, um, come are we going to still talk about 1969, or should I go into 19? Yeah, I think we can
0: skip get back and forth. You know, I think because okay. the the, year, the two years are related, it's interesting too that that and both Peckinpah and Alt- well Altman was was really pretty unknown. It was really his first breakthrough movie. He had done some television and done a couple of other small, very small scale movies, but. Um, like, I think the year after MASH is when Altman made McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and they, they told Warren Beatty that they were going to get Robert Altman to direct, and he says, Who's that? Who's yeah. Robert Altman? Yeah. And they said, Well, you know, he's, he's got a movie in theaters now, go see it. It's called MASH, you're going to love it. So Beatty goes to see MASH, and he hated it. He hated yeah. the fact that people were talking over each other, it's and so he funny. hated that about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, too. He was really angry that Altman um, did that because he thought that, of course, you know, being a star, he wants to be front and center.
1: He didn't you know, like to. The-
2: that's so ironic because you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is probably his one of his best uh, roles and and films. I think that as far as Altman goes, uh, for me, it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller and the Player um, are probably. I love- my- Two I'm favorites. Sorry, no, I was just going to say those are probably my two favorites. I mean, I could talk more about Robert Altman, but those right off the top of my head are my 2 the two that I would pick off the pile to watch.
3: I'd go with McCabe and The Long Goodbye, I think.
1: Mm.
0: And I have to uh, mash, too. I think it deserves to be among the top four or five. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that we talk about McCabe and Mrs. Miller again and, and another when we cover that year, or maybe in the future we're going to do something about our favorite westerns. And I'm 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 calling dibs on McCabe and Mrs. Miller because I love that movie
3: so
2: much. <laughs> All right, I'm doing the Wild Bunch. Um, okay, so in 19. 19- before sorry, before
3: we let go of 1969, I want to say another yeah. something more about True Grit. Um, go
1: for it. Yeah.
3: And and actually, what Ryan said, noting the few awards that it was actually nominated for, uh, makes me think of this. I mean, everybody. We already talked about this a little bit when we talked about the Cohen brothers' version of True Get, but there's a lot of there, – there seems to be a lot of pushback against it as though they're remaking some kind of sacred cow. But I think even if you go back to that time and look at what the Academy thought, the fact that it didn't get Best Picture, it got a token award for John Wayne, who I don't think any fan of John Wayne – who's honest with themselves, would say that that was one of his best performances. I think it's one of his worst. It's not as bad as Genghis Khan, but it's it's not great. And I say that as somebody who likes John Wayne. He did some terrific films. A lot of his John Ford work is fantastic. Yeah. But um, he totally, in my opinion, based based on my interpretation of the book, he totally missed the boat on the Rooster Cogburn character who should be sort of skezzy and sort of dubious in, in sort of the all-American hero john wayne i don't think really had that character in him that's my personal opinion anyway the point that i'm slowly getting around to making here is that i don't think true grit really is any kind of a sacred cow it it it, it's a movie with one of the last uh famous performances of of a beloved actor but beyond that it's really not all that and um i i think that people who are going into the new version too attached to the old version, are are doing a disservice both to the new version and to themselves.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, Do you happen to know by any chance why the Cohens were drawn to True Grit in the first place? Does anyone know?
0: To me, when I read the book, it just sounds so much like it's written in their voice. It's like something they would have written as teenagers, which they were teenagers at the the time, I guess. And it's something that is so much the way that they write. It's their style of dialogue. The same way in, in, in a lot of ways that uh, No Country for Old Men was also. Yeah. It has that ironic humor to it, and it's really dark. It's really dark humor. I um, uh, will say one more thing about the the, the novel and about Charles Fortis. I don't want to keep pulling things out of Damien Bonus' book. <laughs> I feel like, but, but this is one thing. that This is the very last paragraph of, the, of his 1969 chapter. He says that the one thing that John Wayne felt really bad about was he got a letter th- after the Oscars? That Charles Portis, the author of the novel, sent him a letter. There was nothing inside but just a, a photograph of a frontier sheriff, big fat slob. He says with a drooping mustache, and all he said in the letter was, "This is Rooster Cogburn." Oh, and and John Wayne said it gave him such a letdown. He's never gotten over. He never got over it.
2: Oh no, you he should have. He so, should have um, sent him back a picture with him and his Oscars. And said, Eat this motherfucker. Know, <laughs>
3: This is Oscar Cogburn. <laughs> Screw it, fuckball.
0: Exactly. But, I mean, it means Oscar that even Portis was not happy at all with what they did to his novel.
1: <laughs> so funny. Oh,
3: well, I feel a little bad now crapping all over the dude. You know.
1: Poor guy. Oscar Cogburn. <laughs> Suck Oscar on this.
2: No, but, you know, I mean, it's it's like my favorite line in Shakespeare in Love. It's like, you know, who's that? He's nobody. He's the author. You know I mean? It's like <laughs> in Hollywood they never really respect uh, an author's intention. They just want to make money and make the movie, you know. But I did and I, well, and a point.
0: Go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: To a point they shouldn't because they are making a movie and they need to be true to uh, cinema and all that kind of thing. But, you know, if you're going to adapt a book, I think at a certain point, you should respect it a little bit or why bother adapting it
2: right right um and he uh, you know it's been a while since i've seen true grit but um but but somebody like john wayne some you know american icons like that they're not really um used to trained to or even know how to sort of disappear into a role i mean they're playing a persona they're playing he's playing john wayne you know right and people pay to see him be john wayne it's like um william goldman talks about um in in adventures of the screen trade about <clears throat> traditional iconic roles that you just can't mess with those you know like you never see robert redford really doing that um the few times that they do try to step out of of what people expect from them that's usually every once in a while you, you'll see a success but for the most part they kind of fall on their face and nobody wants to see that everybody wants to see them be who they're you know they want them to be which in john wayne's case it was an american icon and The
0: only thing he did step away from was he played a drunk. And I think, I don't know how many other drunks he played as drunk cowboys. He was definitely a drunk in True Grit. And Mm -hmm. I would encourage anybody. Actually, I wouldn't wish sitting through the 69 True Grit, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But if you want (laughs) to skip ahead to the end of it and compare the end of the 69 True Grit with the Cohen version, you'll see the reason for remaking it. And what I said all along is they're not remaking it, they're restoring it. They're restoring it back to the way it should have been done. The ending of the book. And the ending of the screenplay that I've seen is so much better than the ending of the of the first adaptation.
2: Yeah. And they, they, I, second,
0: I second that
3: emotion.
2: I know that they said, I've read at the Coens, they, they did say that they wanted to do a Western. I know that they've always been kind of interested in doing that anyway. They, you know how they love to just kind of dip into these genres. and um, So I'm really excited to see what they're going to do with this. Uh, I know that people say that No Country for Old Men was kind of like a Western. It really was. I mean, it was a much more modern Western, but it was still a Western, you know.
0: Yeah, the setting especially, the locale and also just the, um, the you know, the even the like, cowboy hats and everything else. And I, I've always sort of seen Miller's Crossing as like a gangster western yeah oh yeah it's a, it's a mid, like a midwestern setting it's not a big city western there's and and they're here they are in their trench coats and in fedoras but they're out in the woods they're mm. not on city streets they're in the woods so i've always had thought that it had a western feel to it
2: yeah and then the they're big ver, they're like, very
0: gunslingery too
2: the big lebowski mm-hmm. of course has you know the dude is the dude mm. they has both the dude <laughs> jeff lebowski dude and it also has the dude the, um the cowboy you know uh Sam. Um, Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott as the as the cowboy, and it has this sort of a. I mean, who but the Cohens would mix bowling, you know, um, uh, a rich two two guys named Jeff Lebowski, the rich guy, <laughs> the dude Lebowski, and then have it sort of be set in California with you know tumbleweeds drifting
1: through, and I mean, it has a little in bit. a film
3: noir plot. <laughs> a film noir
1: plot. <laughs> That's another why we thing love too the when they.
0: Uh, didn't Roger Deakins stepped away from the Coen's for a Year and made uh, the assassination of Jesse James, and they might have seen how well he does with the Western setting and, and that sort of dusty kind of cinematography. Not just dusty, but dusty and cold and snowy, which hmm. is the same setting as True Grit.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to see True Grit. I can't hardly stand it. I mean, I just want to see what <laughs> Roger Deakins, you know, taking a bite of the landscapes like he does. He's so great. Well, this is why I think this excited. is what we first
0: – this is why we first picked 1969, I think, when we were trying to decide what year to, to choose, is we wanted to make a connection between the old true grit and and, and to encourage people to get over it, to mm. get over the fact that they're remaking sort of a, a legendary thing because it really wasn't you know, all that.
2: All right, so let's just quickly talk about Best Director uh, that year. There was Costa Costa Gravas for Z, and he ended up going on to make a lot of diff- a lot of American films after that. Um, he made uh, one with uh, Deborah Winger, and... Um, <clears throat> What's the name of that movie? Uh, oh, he made... it Wasn't it Betray- Betrayed or Betrayal? The, m- <laughs> the movie with ever Winger and the, the White Supremacists. I think that's Costa Graves. Um, and then also George Roy Hill for Butch Cassidy, Arthur Penn for Alice's Restaurant, Sidney Pollock for They Shoot Horses, Don't They, and Midnight Cowboy, John Schlesinger. So the, the directors that weren't nominated was for Anne um, of A Thousand Days and Hello, Dolly. So those two movies basically had no shot of winning Best Picture. Um, who even
0: directed Hello, Dahlia? Who was that who directed Hello, Dahlia?
2: I don't even know. It's not on here. <laughs> not important.
0: Really, it's not important.
2: <laughs> but it's just interesting that um, that those two directors were left off. And, I mean, it just kind of shows you that the split is happening in the Academy already, and it's being led uh-huh. by the directors. So we move down to screenplay, and we have *Anne of a Thousand Days, Goodbye, Columbus. Midnight Cowboy again. where it at one. They shoot horses, don't they, for screenplay? And Z again for screenplay. I really liked Z. In a
1: then,
2: lot of
3: the other the subcategories, you can see the the more progressive, forward looking types getting the nominations where they may not have gotten them in the Best Picture. Hmm. But even in director, Arthur Penn and Sidney Pollack were definitely um, current in products of their times, and they they went out for over over the other two. Um, Man, that thought was awesome in my head before it started coming through my lips and became a big pile of crap.
1: <laughs> you know, um, you what's cut interesting out there a bit too? Some something about yeah. the
0: sound cut out.
1: I thought I'd just leave it. Yeah, there to add just... insult to injury. <laughs> Yeah. Watching watch me
0: with my
3: broken wing <laughs> floundering around here on my couch.
1: And all, all awesome. over your pile of screeners. Right? <laughs> yes. So um, moving down to... Uh, what had
0: William Gold- <laughs> Goldman done before Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Uh, um, I have to look it up. My, but I, my mom.
2: <laughs> but <laughs> since you brought it up, I have to say that looking at this Oscar year, um, I think it's really surprising that Bush Cassidy didn't win Best Picture because it was nominated for... Um, screenplay, um, picture, was it nominated for actor? Um, no, it wasn't. no, it was
3: snubbed in the acting. It was only, it was nominated seven times, but there was a lot of musical nominations, um, sound, um, song, uh, like that cinematography. That's probably the reason that one song probably screwed its chances right there. Well, you know, that, that song holds up better than the True Grit song,
1: for sure. No, I just have to I say mean, that it, raindrop- it's raindrops. corny, but what, raind- what, what Asha? I'm sorry, I was just saying, rain, that scene in Butch Cassidy, when they do raindrops keep falling in my head. That is a real low point, and that, yeah, not really just is. that movie. The bicycle, but bicycle, right?
3: <laughs> in an otherwise pretty entertaining movie, it just comes to a grinding halt right That's there. It's like a Butch Cassidy, just, Cassidy uh, love story moment. <laughs> Totally.
1: Um, it's One just-
3: song that didn't get nominated that year was um, Everybody's Talking from um, Midnight Cowboy. But unfortunately, I don't think it qualified because it was not originally composed for the movie. It was mm. a pre-existing song that Harry Nilsson had written and actually somebody else had recorded before him. But of course, his version is, is I think, better remembered because of the movie. But it's unfortunate that uh, Raindrops <laughs> won. <laughs> I just think it's so
2: funny that Raindrops get falling in my head scene. And then you contrast that with Midnight Cowboy. It's like that if that doesn't just tell you all you need to know about this. and
0: the Wild Bunch. You know, they talking about the westerns again, the Wild Bunch and like Midnight Cowboy. And hey, it's just I know. And,
2: and so we moved down to adapted screenplay. And one um,
0: more thing about the um, Butch Cassidy, though. Let's say because I hate to be so negative. I really said, tried to say that I wasn't going to be negative this week. But and, and one more thing in, in favor of Butch Cassidy is that we won Best Cinematography for Conrad mm-hmm. Hall, the great. And Con- Best Screenplay. Hall. For, yeah. uh, maybe, it, maybe you it, mentioned that already, but I just wanted to say Conrad Hall again because then you know he, he, he directed later. He directed. I mean, he did the cinematography for American Beauty and for Road to Perdition, which he and won to, for.
2: Didn't he win for yeah. Road to Perdition? Finally, was it was it so, that, or was it uh, Tequila Sunrise that he won for? He won in his later Perdition, years. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Yeah, no, he was the best. He was great, and he deserved that cinematography prize. Um, So, adapted screenplay, Bob Carroll, Ted Nallis, if you could imagine. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Damned, Easy Rider, and The Wild Bunch. And that's really the first time you see Easy Rider popping up, other than Jack Nicholson um, for a uh, supporting actor nomination for Easy Rider. And it's also the same year that um, two Fondas were nominated. Jane Fonda was nominated for The Issued Horses, and Peter Fonda was nominated for, um, easy, for easy Right. Easy mm-hmm. Right.
0: I think that Henry Fonda said that, uh, What would how would you feel if you're 70 years old and both of your kids are probably going to get the Oscars before you do? Mm. Of course, he eventually did but uh, i think that's a qu- another quote from the bono book which i'm really going to stop doing i promise no i know for. i'm
2: sorry damien bono we're sending out an apology for for um,
0: Oh, it's a good it's good um, publicity for his book everyone should go out and buy this book
2: such a great book but you know i'm actually looking here and i don't see um the other fonda peter fonda even though it says in the trivia that he was nominated but i don't see him in on the list well he
0: must have been nominated for screenplay right he was
1: Co. Oh,
2: okay, yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. you're right. That is where it is. Yeah, because he wasn't really nominated until later, right? With um...
0: yeah, one more weird overlap here is that Dennis Hopper was in True Grit. Dennis Hopper has a role in True Grit. <laughs> There's a scene in True Grit where someone gets their fingers chopped off, and it's in the it's in the remake too. It's in the it's in the uh, the Coen version. And Dennis Hopper, I think, plays the guy who gets his fingers cut off.
1: It never
3: just, occurred just to me that out. that happened in this, it's that it never occurred to me that that happened in the same year as Easy Rider. I remember when I was watching the movie, thinking that it was an early obscure, you know, Dennis Hopper performance. But that was the same year that he kind of became famous.
0: One more thing about Easy Rider. Looking at the, because I looked up the screenwriters real quick. So it was Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper co-wrote the screenplay, and Terry Southern, mm. who we know from Doctor Strangelove. Yeah. Do- Terry Southern wrote Doctor Strangelove.
2: That's so funny. Um, and can I also say about Easy Rider that that is a hilarious um, Oscar nomination for that movie when all they did was like take drugs
1: and <laughs> point the cameras on themselves? <laughs> they weren't really doing anything; <laughs> they were just
0: and and to nominate it for screenplay when so much of that movie was improv. Yeah, you know when when most of the speeches that Nicholson came up with, all of his stoner speeches, he made up on the spot.
1: You yeah, know? but
0: but they that's the sort of thing that does win um, the Oscar a lot of time. The same thing happened with Mash. Uh, Altman told people during uh, the casting of Match that he wasn't even going to give him a script. He said, "If you read the part, you're going to think it's too boring. Just, just wing it, you know."
2: Hmm. And,
0: and it, then it won Best Screenplay.
2: That's so funny. And then they say in this book here, of course, again inside Oscar, um, that, that at this time there were there was a lot of complaints about Hollywood being corporate run, which is funny because we get that now, and how um, these media conglomerates were putting were making these movies and how upset it made everybody and. And they were using this model of Easy Rider because Easy Rider was a movie that basically made money on its own. Like it cost nothing to make and it made a ton of money. So everybody in Hollywood was kind of worried that, that it was go- – I mean funnily enough, according to this book, that, that that it would be going in that direction. Kind of like how we view reality TV now, which is you don't need writers. You don't need um, you know to have a plot or a story. You just put people on camera and they, it can make money. So strangely enough, even though we all don 't really view Easy Rider that way, we kind of look at it as a counterculture movie um back then, they were looking at it as as a career killer
0: and they were looking at it uh, i 'm not sure what you mean by career killer for who for for, for
2: the people that make movies you know like it was it was considered um like reality t v because it basically was i mean it was like they just kind of got together and made this movie and um Improved and, and, you know, and it made a lot of money. So what what does that tell you? It tells you, well, you don't need writers, you know, you don't really need set builders, you just, you know, all you need is a handheld camera and some guys who want to be funny, you know.
0: I do see what you mean, but I also think too that there were enough, especially there were enough writers who recognized that there's an artist at work here, there's an artistry at work here in this movie. And we don't understand it yet, but we need to recognize it. And I'm glad that, that they did. Right. Uh,
2: I, I don't think it was I do a... think,
0: too, that that at the time in 1968 and 69, the studio system had only just ended the, the, right. the, the era when the studio, when the when the men who founded those studios, Jack Warner and, and Thalberg and all those people that had only ended in the 50s. And so the corporate thing had only started happening in the 1960s. And so it was pretty fresh in everybody's mind and they weren't liking it. They sort of, there was a nostalgia then for the studio system
2: that mm. we don't feel. Yeah. And it should be mentioned that in this book, it's not, he's not saying everybody felt that way. It's just a few people did, you know, that it was mm-hmm. <clears throat> that they were being criticized at the time for the popularity of a film like Easy Rider, much the same way they would be today. If it was, you know, um, everybody was watching American Idol and, you know,
1: um, like, and am not sure if is-
0: Universal had out that year, but in, I think it was like the early 60s when uh, Lou Wasserman became head of MCA Universal, and MCA, of course, then it became corporate. It was actually – Lou Wasserman had taken over Universal in, in the early 60s. I think he was the um, one of the first um, of the corporate uh, studio heads. He before had been head of a talent agency, MCA, a talent agency, and Universal became MCA Universal. And he began to package movies using the talent from his own agency, and so that began the era of instead of studio heads and mm-hmm. the the family of the studios used to have it became more of a of a of a financial package deal and I think people had a lot of resentment for that they missed the, the studio system, and there was a lot to be said for the for the way that those old style movie makers understood what worked about movies because another example I can tie in here is that. When they made MASH for 20th Century Fox Richard Zanuck had already taken over from his father Daryl Zanuck had retired so Richard Zanuck was behind while Robert Altman supported him but he was nervous about this movie because it was so different from anything that had been seen before with the overlapping dialogue Hmm. and the very loose plot and the the rowdy humor and all that kind of thing he was worried about what his father was going to think about it so he brought it to New York screened it for Daryl Zanuck the old man and the lights come up after the movie's over and Daryl Zanuck and says we're taking this movie to Cannes. We're taking this movie to the Cannes Film Festival. Hmm.
1: Oh, interesting! And
0: so he he, he knew he knew and he knew what they had. And they said they thought, oh, he's crazy. You know, the comedies never win at the Cannes Film Festival, but it won the Palme d'Or.
1: Wow! MASH won the
0: Palme d'Or that year. Oh, it's and so that really made made Altman's career probably as much as 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 the Oscars that he was nominated for that year, and as much as the movie made. It was the Palme d'Or that gave him that that clout and that prestige then for the rest of his career.
2: Mm, that's so interesting. Gosh. Um, okay, so we have to move on now to 1970. Um, 1970, the Best Picture nominees were Airport, Five Easy Pieces. Oh, wait. Are we already talking about 1970? <laughs>
0: skip back and forth and you know what five easy pieces i always get those the, i conflate those two movies easy yeah. Rider and five, five easy here. pieces
2: okay so yeah. um yeah so we're 1970 we're coming out of we're coming into really what what we could call the jack nicholson era because we have jack nicholson being nominated for supporting actor for um easy Rider, and then 1970 it's airport five easy pieces love story mash and Patton are the best picture nominees And we have Jack Nicholson as lead actor being nominated for Five Easy Pieces. He lost to George C. Scott for Patton. And, of course, Patton also won Best Picture. And did it win Best Director? Yes, for Franklin J. Schaffner. Um, He beat Ken Russell for Women in Love, Arthur Hiller for Love Story, (laughs) Um, Fellini for Satyricon, and uh, Robert Altman for M.A.S.H., a, um, they must have really liked Patton.
0: Um, well, they did, and I think for a good reason too. I have am really fond of Patton. I like Patton a lot, and I think it's not a bad choice that year. When you it look, holds especially really when you well. look at the other nominees, you know, when you look at the other nominees, um, I think it's a very good choice. I—I I think MASH is a more important movie, much more important movie in the history of cinema. But Patton is very respectable, and a great thing about Patton, a very interesting thing about Patton is that it was written, of course, by Francis Ford Coppola, right? Hmm.
3: Yeah. And, <clears throat> *Mash* may be a more important movie, but can I just go out on a limb and say that it's actually one of my, my least favorite uh, Altman movies? I know hmm. it's really popular, and it probably made it the most money of his entire career, and it was important for its time, but it just it hasn't h- held up that well for me. I like some of the ones that he did later that he built on from those ideas uh, more than that one.
2: Um, you know, the... <laughs> The Airport and Love Story have to be the two worst, you know, best picture nominees I can think of. Love Story was a um, uh, film that was was a cultural phenomenon. It got roasted by the critics, but it became critic proof. It was like the blind side. And <laughs> it turned Allie McBride. Allie McBraw. Allie Allie McBraw. Allie McBeal,
3: that's what you meant to say. (laughs) Allie Allie McBlah
2: Into a huge star, like she was on the cover of Time Magazine because of this, and this was her project, this film.
0: Um, It was a phenomenon, too, because the book was a phenomenon at the time, too, right? It was the book that everybody had to read, and it was the book that was easy for everybody to read, I think, because it was like 40 pages long.
2: I know, but you know what's funny about that, that I just learned from reading Damien Bona and Mason Wiley's Inside Oscar, was that... They wrote the damn book after the screenplay was written and right before the movie came out, and they did it as publicity to for the movie.
1: Not That's, kidding. No, isn't that funny? That.
2: Yeah. You wouldn't know that, but um, but they did. They they the guy wanted to write it like a movie, and they once it. And shot, who was the
0: author? I forgot his mm, name. I don't know, but but you know he was he was a Al Gore's roommate in college.
2: Oh wow, the person who um, not Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs>
1: Tommy Lee Jones, Al Gore's but uh, um, no, it was his other roommate it was like <laughs> Herb Schmemkins.
2: <you> know? <laughs> no, but um, i was just gonna say that uh, that yes, yeah, her friend Allie McGraw's friend wrote the screenplay for Love Story and she liked it, and which is funny because that's what it says in this book. But then I think when I was watching um, the documentary about Bob Evans, I think in the documentary it said that she she loved the book.
0: And I wanted to say too that I think I mean, we might have got cut off before the recording got got cut off. I was going to say MASH I think is is a more important movie than Patton and Craig said that it may be one of his least favorite Altman movies or are mm. not among that his best, his most favorite.
3: Yeah, I would agree that MASH is important, but it in in Robert Altman's overall filmography it's one of my lesser favorite ones. It's just, it's it's just, it's important and it's actually one of his most popular in terms of how much money it made. But I'm actually pretty comfortable with, with the slightly more square pick of Patton winning that year. I mean it's a terrific film that holds up well um, 40 years later and um, you can't really argue with George C. Scott's powerhouse performance behind it.
0: Patton's a great, great movie and I think that I agree in a, in a way about MASH. I think that Altman who was still finding himself. That was really his first major breakthrough movie of course. He never had that kind of budget before. He didn't really know how to use all the tools he had at his disposal. He was, even stylistically, it all hadn't come together for him yet. He had these things that he liked to do with the overlapping dialogue and the long telephoto lenses and the zooms and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But he hadn't really figured out how to use them all yet. But I think, and I think the movie MASH, I think really starts to fall apart when they get into the football game and stuff like that. It becomes a little bit too Mm slapsticky, for me at least. But um, overall, I think because it introduced the world to Robert Altman and because there are so many things that we can see the seeds of his future films in yeah. MASH, that's why I consider it to be important.
2: Right. But I agree with yeah, you. I, a great movie. And you can see, I, I, sorry,
3: go ahead. I, I don't want to denigrate MASH too much because it was a huge breath of fresh air, especially in the context of the time that it came out. And like you say, it has all of the the seeds of all the great things that we love about Altman. It's just that I think those those seeds came to more full flower um, later on. And there there are other movies that I would rather sit down and watch than MASH. But that doesn't mean that MASH was not incredibly important. Yeah. MASH win anything.
0: It was nominated for five Oscars, right? Did it win anything besides the screenplay?
2: It doesn't look like it. Um.
0: And screenplay was only, I think the only credit on the screenplay was Ring Lardner, right? Ring Lardner was a screenplay, screenwriter from the 1940s. I think he was a humorist, uh, like a New Yorker-style humorist in the 1930s and 40s. He wrote screenplay for, I think, uh, that uh, Tracy and Hepburn movie, Woman of the Year, which he won an Oscar for. But then he was blacklisted during the 50s, and so he didn't make any movies for a long time. But he found this book mash and he wanted to review it for the new york times so we talked to his agent and his agent had the idea that this would make a great movie so that was the genesis for for mash and ring lardner so he wrote the screenplay and gave it to altman and of course we know how altman is with screenplays he throws them out the window he tells his his actors you know don't pay any attention to the screenplay just go with your just just wing it and go with your gut you know and so Ring Lardner goes to see the final cut of the movie, and he's furious after the movie. He says, I can't believe you did this to me. You know, there's oh. not a single word of mine up there on the screen. You can't believe you did this to me. Then, you know, a few months later, he wins the Oscar.
2: Oh, my God. That's so funny. That is a great story. Wow. Um, I also like to give a little history on um, just, well, first, let me just say that I think when I look at this year, I really think that the the most influ not influential but the most memorable talked about film of the Best Picture lineup would probably be Five Easy Pieces. It might be the only one, and that's just because of Jack Nicholson. It's not even really because of the film, although the film really did sort of set in motion that type of film for the seventies to come. You know, um, I also think that that Mash and and you know, started what what could be called the Robert Altman era as well, like Jack Nicholson and Robert Altman. I mean, these are two giants of the 70s that really kind of drove cinema back then. Um, Interestingly, uh, Francis Ford Coppola wrote the screenplay for Patton. He was, like, called upon as, like, a 26-year-old college kid to write it. And it was the same thing. Like, after he wrote it, um, the director and and I think even George C. Scott looked at it and just said, oh, this is terrible, you know, and then, then it was rewritten,
0: Well, they hated the beginning of it. They hated that that, uh, huge backdrop of that flag. They thought that was a weird way to begin a movie. And here's Patton all dressed up with all his medals. And then the next thing you see, he's... He's kicked back to a two-star general, and they thought that would confuse audiences. And I think they first offered the part to Burt Lancaster to play yeah, Patton. That's and Lancaster right. said, "You know, I'm not even. This is too surreal. This movie is just way out there." Right. And so they right. they were going to toss uh, Coppola's script right out, weren't they?
2: Yeah, they did. But he ended up winning the Oscar. It says here that he ended up co you know winning as a co writer with the.
0: I had time this morning to to pop in the DVD of Patton and and look at uh, Coppola's introduction to it. And he says that in 1971, he had started filming The Godfather, and Paramount was pretty unhappy with him. He was he was a pretty untested director to be giving such an important project to, right? They weren't really pleased with the way things were going, and he felt like he was on the verge of being fired. And then he won the Oscar for a screenplay for Patton. And he says he feels like that that, that Oscar was the important thing that, that, that helped him stay on the job for the godfather he wouldn't have made the godfather if it hadn't been for the oscar that's
2: well, so interesting wow
0: did he
3: explain why he didn't show up for the oscar ceremony
2: probably i don't
0: know maybe he didn't think he was going to win i'm just not sure or maybe he could have been involved in production or something i'm just not sure about that
2: hmm. so maybe he was mad that they totally redid his script
0: I don't think they did redo it though. See, I think that's the thing. I think that that's uh, to 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 Schaefer's credit. He went back and he said, "No, I, the beginning with the flag and the surreal stuff, with hearing voices from the past and all the historical dreams that Patton's connecting with the past generals and everything." I like that stuff. We're going to leave it in. Hmm. So it was really they 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 actually ended up keeping Coppola's screenplay.
1: Wow. He um. was
3: up against Norman Wexler for Joe, Bob Rafelson for Five Easy, and Carol Eastman for Five Easy Pieces, Eric Siegel for Love Story, and Eric Romer for My Night at Mauds.
1: Oh, Eric
2: Romer. That's so nice. But, you know, it's funny that Love Story went as far as it did. A screenplay nomination. That's
1: I know. incredible. You you know, that's, I guess that's it was a, a,
0: a real tearjerker. I have to admit, when the first time I saw it, I was, a, I was a teenager, and it choked me up. How can you not be choked up by that movie? Maybe I'm i have, I'm not that sentimental anymore, but I can understand how how it would get to people.
1: Hmm.
3: Love means never having to say you're sorry
1: <laughs> it's, Come know, on. Of course it's corny
0: of course it's corny now, but I mean you know those were corny times
2: well and and you know it really is sort of it's an example i would point to people who don't quite understand how the oscar race works most of the time and that is how it works most of the time It they, they do reward craig as you were saying last time it's just a moment in time it's a snapshot it's a time capsule of what was going on then and certainly love story was the big movie of the year it was like fatal attraction when it was nominated you know or towering inferno or even the god-awful airport here we are complaining about love story when airport was nominated now listen i have to say airport is one of my favorite all-time favorite like bad cheesy movies it is just you know entertaining from start to finish but it's just funny to me that it would have been an actual best picture nominee it's just so funny but i've only
1: seen it one uh, time didn't
0: uh, helen uh, hayes win it helen Helen Hayes, hayes
2: won supporting and um, we can just say really quickly that the, f- the films that did not get nominated that year, it, there weren't really that many. It shows you what a ye- weak shows you what a weak year it was at all, because beyond the Valley of the dolls was the one, <laughs> one of the ones listed here. Uh, Roger Ebert co-wrote that, um, women in love, the D.H. Lawrence, Ken Russell movie, little big man, the honeymoon killers, which I don't know if you guys have seen that. I actually really like that movie. Um, and on a clear day, you can see forever. So it's not like there are these great masterpieces lurking in the background that they could have nominated, you know? So yeah, maybe that's why, again,
0: I go back to the fact that I think that they did a pretty good job with what they had to work with in 1969 and 1970. They really did choose some pretty good nominees in, 19, in those two years. Mm. I will say well, that overseas, the foreign films that year were Spider Stratagem, which is Bertolucci's first breakthrough movie that he made a year before The Conformist, which is like... You know, Conformance is maybe one of my top three or four movies of all time. And um, can, the Spider-Strategy is hard to find now. I don't even think it's on DVD, but anybody can track it down. You should check it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, But like I, I'm looking down the list, too. There's really not a lot else that was going on that no, year. No,
2: I mean, uh, reading through this book, the, the one of the interesting stories was uh, Carrie Snodgrass, who was nominated for Diary of a Mad Housewife. And apparently there was some, um, you know, Michigan about the fact that she wouldn't change her name, you know, to, to be in mm-hmm. Hollywood. She said something like, and this this is very typical of, of Bona and Wiley, um, this kind of an anecdote, you know, where she would just say, you know, if, if they want me to change my name and if I have to be something different, I don't want to even work in this business at all. And mm-hmm. she, she basically disappeared after that, you know that's I right i
0: that's right. I had forgotten that she didn't really do anything else i haven't really I haven't seen that movie as a matter of fact. I don't know really anything about that movie, no. and I'm embarrassed to say that I have seen airport and Love Story, but I haven't seen five easy pieces. So that's kind of um. embarrassing. I shouldn't even say, but it's true
2: well, five easy pieces is I've seen it um it has that one really great scene the you know hold it between your knees <laughs> or Jack oh, Nicholson that, right? yeah. freaks right. out in a diner, but yeah. um a lot of it is just kind of um contemplative sort of um, think piece really. I mean it, it definitely was very typical of the of the um, era you know of the 70s it, to come it, it was, it's, a,
3: it's a European character drama but made, yeah. made in America which um, you know like Sasha said before it's sort of the one of the opening shots of the whole 1970s kind of thing. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, oh, wow. You two are too polite to mention it but um, while I'm sitting here Crapping on populist drivel like Love Story and, <laughs> and um, Airport. It uh, should be pointed out to the listeners that of the three of us, I'm the one who liked The Blind Side, so <laughs> you, you can you can take that to the bank. And it's actually it's interesting to me what sort of the the driving forces with the Academy are. They're 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 oftentimes at cross purposes. It's not like there's one guy that's just making these decisions. It's a body of people that are voting and, and pop and populism is one factor. Um, Nostalgia is another factor. Um, Importance seems to be a factor. And it seems like each year, it's sort of a mashup of all these, 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 these factors. And, and some, some years, um, Shit, this thought just went to hell again. That's okay. I know what yeah. you're
0: saying. The Academy, we, we, we make the mistake of thinking of the Academy having one big brain, and they don't. They have like 5,000 yeah. brains. And not only yeah. that, they're divided into, into segments of a of 1,000 people each. And those segments divide up kind of neatly into generations. And a, and a generational-type split is going to go for a movie like Love Story and the Blind Side. Not all. I'm not saying that it's only about your age, but it could be about your level of sentimentality or whatever. But there are segments of the academy. All it takes is like a one fifth of the academy to to get a movie nominated for best picture, mm.
1: right?
2: But but you know, uh, but the Blind Side is is a movie like that. Like it really was very much a big thing. You know, last year it was uh, it was like Airport or Love Story. I mean, it was a cultural phenomenon, and and there is a very strong current in the academy that still honors money makers and still honors, you know, cultural phenomenon like that. They just do. That's what they do. And you know, for the most part, you'll still get 75% of the best picture nominees will be really good movies. There's just that 25% usually that um is reserved for the kind of the people's choice. And I'm wondering what movie that's going to be this year, you know, what what's going to be the popular film that gets in that isn't necessarily critics favorite.
0: Um, I don't know about that. When you think about movies that are popular, a lot of them have been critics' favorites, the movies that have been popular with audiences and critics alike. That's why I don't think that people should be worried at all about Inception. Inception is so in. Not only is it hugely popular, we still get hits on on things that I posted about Inception from three months ago. And plus it's really popular with the critics. It's it's very well respected. Right, but they're thinking that
2: it won't be popular with the Academy because it wasn't popular with, a.o scott and the new york times and you know
0: i don't know about that i'm just not sure we'll have to wait and see what happens at the end of the year the critics awards and stuff like that i'm glad you mentioned though about the, the box office though for the blind side and comparing that to love story i'm checking here on mojo and i see that love story as far as with ing- adjusting for inflation love story is still is the 34th highest grossing movie of all time
1: Oh my God! four. Thirty-fourth out of
0: all the millions of movies made, thousands oh of movies. Oh my
1: God! No one incredible. ever went broke. under history, the taste of the American public. <laughs> God. Um,
2: okay, so is there anything more to talk about with nineteen seventy, or should we just? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's as well, um, interesting. I like the
0: anecdote. I like the anecdotes from the bonus book, and I have one one real short one about. If we can go back briefly to to um, the Wild Bunch. Uh, Sam Peckinpah was in Toronto, I think, at a press conference uh, on a rant about American censorship and the way that they always wanted to chop things out of his movies. And, and I think The Wild Bunch was pretty shocking for a lot of people at the time, the violence and also what they were doing to the Western genre. A lot of people in Hollywood weren't really ready for that. And some reporters stood up in Toronto and asked Peckinpah, uh, I heard that uh, Danny Kaye and Yul Brenner walked out of your movie. And and Peckinpah says, do you think I give a shit if Danny
3: Kaye walks out of my movie?
2: (laughs)
1: That's great. (laughs)
3: Peckinpah's
2: awesome. That's a great anecdote. Um, I also want to point out that this year was also the year that, uh, first of all, that Love Story won Best Score, of course, because, you know, who doesn't remember the Love Story score? It was one of the few times it beat Patton. um, And Let It Be by the Beatles won Best Song, which is interesting. Oh, wow. Original song score, they call it, Let It Be. What was that? was that in, I wonder?
3: There was a documentary about the making of the album.
2: I don't know, because it doesn't look like... And the other ones that are nominated are um, A Boy Named Charlie Brown, (laughs) Darling Lily, uh, Scrooge, and The Babymaker. It doesn't say what movie they're attached to. Uh, Maybe it was just... I shouldn't just guess randomly because I don't have the facts. So if someone out there knows the answer, tell me what this. year we're talking about again. I forgot. Song. A, we're talking about song. It's. it's I know. Called, but is
0: it 69 or 70.
2: 70. 70. And the song is the category is called original song score. Interesting, isn't it? So maybe they didn't have as stricter rules about song back then, and it just could be any song that's in a movie and not. But I'm I'm just blindly guessing. I don't know. I haven't looked it up to see what the category was, but. Um, but it would make sense that if Let It Be... Because I don't think the Beatles wrote Let It Be for any movie. They just wrote the song, right? It was just probably and, just... And so the rules, They, they happened to make a movie about.
3: while they were recording it. But other than that, they didn't do it specifically for a movie, no.
0: The music branch, they changed their rules like every year about what's eligible, right? And it's strange that they would uh, allow incidental music like that. I know.
2: And um, the housekeeping, housekeeping part of this press was uh, that Irving Thalberg Award went to Ingmar Bergman. And the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Frank Sinatra, and honorary Oscars went to Lillian Gish and Orson Welles. Interesting, huh? Just, yeah. So that we we'll call that housekeeping because that's like making up for past um, errors, failures on their part to recognize great. Do you think?
3: Household. Do you prefer that they do it in in those kinds of awards, or do you like the fake career achievement awards like John Wayne for True Grit?
0: <laughs> oh, I hate the fake career achievement. I, I just I can't stand it. I really enjoy the the genuine uh, special recognition with a special Oscar career recognition so much better. And I wish they would bring it back to the broadcast.
2: Um, I'm not sure. I feel sort of two ways about it. Like, I was happy that Jeff Bridges won last year, even though I don't think that was his strongest performance. And I think that Colin Firth was better in a single man. Um, but Colin Firth is coming back this year with, you know, maybe his best performance. So, um I don't know. I feel two ways. I don't begrudge them um, when they do that because a lot of times you're voting for people you like anyway, and you're not voting necessarily for the best performance. Plenty of Oscars are given out to people that they just happen to like, you know, whether they deserve it or not. So um, if you're gonna, if that's gonna be one area where you nitpick, there to me there are ten other areas where I could also say that I don't think it's it's right. So I don't. That isn't my personal pet peeve, but I know a lot. It does bother a lot of people.
3: Answering my own question, I'm a little bit torn on it. Going back to the 1969 year, um, you know, they could have easily, just as easily, given a, a career a career awards to, to Burton or, or O'Toole, and I, I don't know that I would have minded if they had. Actually, even though they yeah. those were not their best performances, or their best films, or even the best performances of the year. Since I happen to like those two actors better than John Wayne, I, I probably would be okay with it. But right, um,
2: and was done. Wayne
0: sick then? Was he? Was he? Did he? Was he? Um, was
3: he in ill I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Not yet. I, I no, could that, be right wrong
0: about that. Yeah, I don't think so. I didn't have any read anything about that. I will say to type one loose in about Let It Be. There was a documentary called Let It Be in nineteen seventy, and that's what that's what that movie. That's what the yeah. song is. Yeah, interesting. You should say that about the Beatles.
2: Okay, because I was just looking yeah, at the it back said that, here, didn't I? and it says okay. it says eligible songs that failed to be nominated, and has let, let It Be on there as well. So I guess it wasn't nominated for song, but it was somehow it was nominated for something, and it won.
3: Song score. One
0: best music original song score. That's right. That Craig is correct. That's what it won. But it just mm-hmm. didn't win for that in, that one individual song. It, it lost mm-hmm. about music. If we can go back to Mash just a minute. Uh, that, that this is our, This is my last story. I promised last story of the <laughs> week. <laughs> this is a good one though. I like this story a lot. Um, you know that, that song in Mash that opens the movie that suicide is painless. If you mm-hmm. haven't, if you don't remember from the movie, you'll remember it from hearing it a million times on the t- television show because it was the opening theme from the television show, too.
1: Yeah. I
3: actually sang
0: it in drama class
3: when uh. I was in seventh grade.
0: <laughs> Suicide is Painless. It's really like this folksy kind of tune. Uh, Altman wanted uh, that to be used in a scene. uh in the middle of the movie when uh, when the doctor who's nicknamed painless is actually contemplating suicide and he told johnny mandel who's doing the score that i want i want a really stupid song i want to put the stupidest song that you can think of and i want to be really this corny folksy song and they got together that night and they got drunk and all they could come up with was the title uh, suicide is painless and and altman said don't worry i'll take this home with me i'll work on it and he came up blank and the next day. He said, I have too many mature thoughts in my head. It's coming out too smart. I need something that's really, uh, um, immature. And he said, I know what my, my kid, my 14 year old kid is plays the guitar. He writes poetry. I'll give it to him and see what he, so they call him downstairs. And the kid says, I don't know. It's a big job. I don't know if I can do this. And I said, just give it a try, you know. So the kid goes back upstairs, or I think he goes to his grandmother's house and he writes like 120 verses. song, And he hates them all. He just tears it up. And so a couple days later, Altman says, you know, whatever happened to that song I asked you about? And so the the kid kind of panics and he goes out in the backyard and tries to jot down some of the things he remembers. And so they use the song. Sorry, this is kind of dragging on. But anyway, Mm -hmm. the thing is, so uh, they gave the kid $500. His fee was $500 for the song. And they gave him 50% of the rights to the song, 50% copyright to the song. So when they started using the theme song for the for the television show, these checks started rolling in, hundred and twenty dollars, three hundred dollars, thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollar checks. The kid ended up making two million dollars off of that oh song. Oh my god! That's fourteen years old when he wrote it, and meanwhile, Altman no himself only made 70, 75000 dollars with his directing fee for the movie. Seventy five thousand. Oh, you've
2: got to be kidding me! That's the funniest thing.
0: the reason that altman's fee was so small once they got the movie going 20th century fox realized they might have something really important on their hands and and altman was unproven and they had promised him at first and fifty thousand dollars, which was not even very much at the Mm. time but they were going to cut that in half and and trying to get him to quit and um so his agent goes to him and said they want to cut your fee in half i'm sorry and altman's kind of threw a fit but his agent said, you know what? You want to really piss Fox off? Accept this lowball offer because mm. this movie is going to be more important than the money you're going to make from it. So go wow. ahead and accept the $75,000.
2: God, that's so, so great. It's an incredible story. Um,
0: I love this part. of That's it. great.
2: I just have to say that the next year after these two years is a really good year because the Best Picture nominees are Clockwork Orange, The French Connection, The Last Picture Show. Nicholas and Alexandra, and then Fiddler on the Roof, old school, <laughs> old school style Fiddler on the Roof. Um, but The French Connection won Best Picture, and Gene Hackman won Best Actor for that. So, and then that's also the McCabe and Mrs. Miller year. So.
0: Great right, year, and then and then what is that before we have Godfather Two in Chinatown?
1: Mm. Right.
2: You've been listening to Three Way Movie Chasm with. Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from AwardsDaily.com and Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com You can find us on Twitter at AwardsDaily or at LivingInCinema or at Ziggy Starfucker. <laughs> and we'll be back here same time uh, same podcast
1: Thanks for listening Take a load for free to hide When I saw